0: There's often this external pressure that we just need to keep delivering, you got to keep getting it out there like I feel like I've heard from a lot of um, like found a lot of like early stage PMMs or they're working with the founder, there's this pressure of like oh we have to be able to say look we're working on the product see like and you just ship something, regardless of how, you know, how cohesive of a story it is. But. I mean, my argument was that it is much more powerful if you waited and you could maybe batch some of those features and, and tell a cohesive story. Like in my mind, it's sort of the difference between giving someone a single flower and giving them a bouquet. But like the flower is a nice gesture, but a bouquet, like you're balancing all these colors and hues, and it's just it's just a better experience. Like it's, it's just not worth it most of the time to ship it only to say, "Look, we we're working on the product."
1: Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast. Brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jopper. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers to uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this, our 100th episode, I'm joined by Colin Majak, Product Marketing Manager at Daytaro. Colin is an emerging voice in the product marketing space, sharing the insights and learnings he's gained from his early days as a product marketer. This episode is also a very special one as it marks my last time behind the microphone as host of the show. It's been a truly incredible two and a half years across almost 70 episodes. And I can't thank enough the team at the PMA, my incredible guests, and of course, you, the listener for allowing me to do something I really love meeting and learning from incredibly talented product marketers. What makes this episode even more meaningful is that Colin will be taking over as host from here on out during our chat, Colin outlines his passion for product marketing and why he's excited to lead the hosting charge moving forward. Colin also demonstrates his own product marketing chops, sharing his point of view on when and why to delay a product launch. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in one last time. Hey, Colin, how's it going?
0: Hey, man, I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Very well. Very excited to be having you on the show, introducing you to the the uh, PML audience, and get uh, allow them to get to know you as you know the future host of the show.
0: Yeah, uh, this feels a little bit surreal, and I could share more about this, but when i was trying to break into product marketing and landing my first job i remember like binging episodes of this podcast just trying to ingest all the product marketing content that i could and to to be in a spot of one even being on it and two getting to follow in your footsteps hosting it feels kind of surreal
1: i'm um, i'm happy to hear that and i'm sure the majority of the knowledge is coming from the fantastic guests i've had on the show and you know I've been very fortunate to speak with some really great minds and to add you to that long list of great product marketing people uh, is an honor for me as well. And to pass it off to you is even that much more of an honor. So excited to have the audience get to know you a bit better. Of course, we've got a topic to chat through at the very end, but I think we'll spend most of our conversation just yeah. you know, sharing a little bit more about you as the new host of the show.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
1: Cool. So uh, let's start with the first question before we get into you know the details of your career and your interest in product marketing. I think it'd be great for listeners just to get to know you a bit better.
0: Yeah, you know, I feel like people don't talk about this stuff in SaaS podcasts. But I, I have a family and I have a life outside of outside of SaaS and LinkedIn. So I live in Nashville uh, with my wife Maddie. We've we're coming up on ten years married in May, which feels wild. Um, and we have two young kids. My daughter Frances is four, or Fran, and then James is eleven months. And life just feels really full like it's it's really fun and sweet we we moved here about three years ago from portland oregon i'm west coast kind of born and raised and this is kind of relevant to career history but it's also about me like if you rewind five years ago nothing in my history my degrees my background says like oh yeah this guy he's gonna be a pmn and b2b SaaS. like i i didn't know any of those acronyms five years ago And so I do feel like this accidental sort of product marketer. But with that, like I feel this personal investment to help people make career transitions, particularly in tech, because like, I mean, yesterday I took a call from someone who wants to break into product marketing and I responded to another DM from this guy. I've kind of been trying to coach along the way. Who's breaking from a similar background into product marketing. And he got his first interview. So like, that was an exciting moment. They kind of feel like, I feel like this mama hen trying to like take care of all the chicks. But yeah, that's that's a bit about me.
1: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And very admirable. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the call or the DM, uh, because I too have a call genuinely after we hop off our conversation now uh with someone who's also looking to make a break into product marketing. And you know, I, I think that only just illustrates, despite you know, layoffs in the tech space over the last little while, that there is still not only a demand for product marketers, but an interest in the function. Um, yeah. So you know, you're, you're coming in as host as a, as a great time at a great time. You know, I don't think product marketing's ever been this hot as it were. And yeah. I'm sure that'll only open you up to some more, uh, even even more engaging and interesting conversations than even the ones that I've had to date. So perfect timing. And yeah, Sweet. thanks for sharing that uh, bit of personal background. Always great to get to know the person behind the, the microphone, especially for the listeners who'll be hearing your voice over the next several months, if not years. So thanks for sharing. that. I'll
0: try to keep keep those little bits of personal touch.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, Absolutely,
0: pure SaaS.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's transition into more of that pure SaaS mindset. Uh, let's give the listeners a bit of an overview of your career so far.
0: Yeah, so my I hinted this, but my background is sort of an unconventional one. I I got two degrees in theology and religion, and learned some dead languages, and spent a huge part of my career working in a church. And that, while that may not seem like the kind of seabed. Of a product marketing career, I've I really attribute my learning how to write to working in that environment and my learning how to tell a story and invite people to be a part of that story. That's essentially nonprofit work in a nutshell. It's like you present a compelling vision and you're inviting people to take all these little steps towards involvement. But along the way, I decided, hey, that's not gonna be a long-term fit. And I truly had no idea what I was gonna do. I was like, I had two degrees that felt useless and had no idea where I wanted to land. But my first job was pivoting out of that was as a project manager on a marketing team for a personal finance app. So kind of like a scrum master role, but for a tech marketing team. And it was a huge pivot, like drinking from the pure fire hose. But, and I remember being in onboarding and like leaning over to the person who was training me, like what is Bofu and MoFu and Tofu? Like I just, so much language I didn't know. But that role did two things like one, it gave me a close up look of what does it take to like from start to finish from the exec team and the product team all the way out to getting out the door, like iterate, build and take digital products to market. And I was like hooked basically immediately and became really clear, like I love being in this environment. I don't necessarily want to be a project manager. Like I, I was watching all the marketers. and I feel like all the marketers had fun, particularly product marketers. Like they're trying to solve issues on adoption. And how do we get people to watch the first video in our digital product? And I was like, so engaged in that. And it was around that same time that my buddy, Nick, who was a VP of marketing at a company called Subsplash, Subsplash built a media and payments platform for churches. So they very like relevant to my background and they happen to be hiring for a product marketer. And so like I interviewed, I binged this podcast, this very one and others to get ready for interviews. Um, I was like ripping through April Dunford's, um, obviously awesome. And they took a chance on me because they knew I would understand their customer because I used to be their customer. And I got exposure to the full marketing funnel in that project manager role. And I've been in it ever since. Since then, I've taken um, two founding product marketer roles. Currently, I'm at a company called Dataro and we use machine learning to help nonprofits identify ready-to-give donors in their database. And I'm getting a chance to kind of build out the product marketing function from the ground up as we move from Australia to the US.
1: Very cool. Yeah. And definitely a career path that's unique, but still representative of, of that of a lot of other product marketers, you know, never really knowing what product marketing is until being exposed to it firsthand. But finding it and absolutely falling in love with it. So thanks for sharing that. And before we move on to the next question, I'm just curious, have you found a difference in product marketing coming from the not-for-profit space and moving into the profit space and then kind of back out into the not-for-profit space? Any, any difference in approach or things that you, you know, do day to day that might be slightly different? Uh, curious. Yeah. If any, anything I, think,
0: I think the biggest gap comes down to the When you're working in a nonprofit or serving nonprofits right now, my company is for profit, but our customers, fundraisers, you're dealing with a buyer who is not your normal B2B buyer. Like they don't, they're not typically buying software. They don't have a framework for the process. They're not always, they're often like early stage in their awareness of some of the problems. And obviously that's, that's not all nonprofits. There are some that are really sophisticated and really advanced, but I would say the majority of people in that space that I've served they are just not your normal buyers. And so there's a lot of needing to simplify and over-explain everything and kind of give like a really clear path of, here's how you learn about our product, here's what a demo is, here's what you can expect. And I think it's good though, because it forces you to get down to the bare minimum of what is what does our product do? Uh, like we've even debated internally, like I, I said that we help identify ready to give donors and people internally, like, that's too simple. And because like we do a lot more and that's true, we do a lot more than that. But that's the simplest way to explain to a fundraiser what we do. And you have to go like bottom shelf. Uh, even like fundraising predictions is a little bit too broad even though that is what we do. But yeah, that's the biggest The biggest gap is you have to just understand that this is not your normal B2B buyer. They're not someone from Zoom Info. They're not you know, in that circle of I work at a SaaS company buying SaaS from another SaaS company, that kind of endless circle, it's very, very different.
1: Yeah, and what I love about that is it's 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 so easy being in the space of a B two B SaaS marketing to just assume that everybody's familiar with you know evaluating tools and, and expecting yeah. you know what the first touch of the experience is going to be like all the way through to the decision to purchase. So I think you're absolutely right, and you know it's it's funny you give that as an example because uh, you know in some of the work that I do outside of my primary job, um, in helping my wife in the mental health practice that she works at, um, they actually went through a similar kind of software yeah. management or our practice management software by evaluation process. And they had never, you know, gone through that before. And it was just interesting seeing firsthand yeah. what that experience is like for someone from the first time, like, again, what, like, what should I be considering? What feature should I be looking for? What, what price seems reasonable. And that's, yeah. again, stuff that it's so easy to take for granted. And the other reason I like you sharing that experience is because it's very relevant to what uh, Jason Oakley mentioned on my last episode. Uh, which was this idea of buyer enablement becoming increasingly yeah. more important, right? Making it easier, not only for the seasoned buyers to evaluate your solution and come to a final purchase decision and maybe get yeah. internal stakeholder buy-in, but also for first-time buyers. I think that's a great insight that you know he identified and that you've kind of echoed uh, that, yeah, I think is going to become increasingly important for product marketers over the, over the next little while.
0: Yeah. And I think, I can't remember, it might've been Jason who said this, but if not all attributed to him, because he's he's brilliant anyway but i really do think ease of buying even in the like b2b space where take these are educated buyers that ease of the buying process will increasingly become a differentiator like if you can make it extremely easy to buy that's not just gonna soon enough that'll not just be relevant to like my customer base that's gonna be relevant that's gonna separate one SaaS company from another in that sort of normal buying process so yeah Agreed. People are people don't want to take four calls from a 20-year-old SDR. And even though I love those 20 year old SDRs to get pricing. Like they just want it to be easy. I don't know. I can the pricing soapbox is one of the uh, soapboxes I can stand on, but I'll I'll step down for now.
1: The nice thing is, is I'm sure you'll have guests in the future who will also want to chat pricing with you. So we'll save that soapbox for, for a future episode. I'll save um, my Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, well, we'll move on to the next question here, and you know we've kind of alluded to this throughout your your answers to some of my previous questions. But I'm curious, what was it about product marketing that made you want to take the plunge?
0: Yeah, at the at the risk of oversimplifying it, there's probably two things. Uh, one, I feel like I discovered early that product marketing is solving problems. Like that's at at the core of it. It's it's, it's solving a wide variety of them. So you're solving product problems and the fact that your product doesn't fit market expectations or customer expectations. You're solving like competitive problems, like, oh, this competitor's launched this new thing. What are we going to do about it? It's messaging problems. Like we built, ran this whole campaign and it flopped and sales problems down the line. And all those challenges just like appealed to me like i hinted at this earlier but i remember being in that meeting as a project manager and watching them try to figure out how they were going to get our customers to watch the first videos like our product was a financial education app and a lot of it was video content and people would purchase and they wouldn't watch the first video it's so like they would give us their money and then disappear and so trying to figure out like how do we get them to do that and i was just 10 times more interested in that than like agile principles and Kanban and all all the stuff that I was supposed to be doing, and then secondly, I think I remember my buddy Nick, who again I interviewed with at Subsplash to take that first role. He recommended obviously "Awesome" by April Dunford, the queen of positioning herself, and I could not put that book down. And I think my background, like in that church world, so much of it was the power of words. Like I was writing a lot of content and doing like forty five minute presentations, and. I think I was struck with the way that words end up building positioning and the power of words in positioning. Like it's the words that shape perception. It's the words you choose that build a category. Category doesn't exist until someone puts words around it uh, or to differentiate your product. And I like, I ripped through that book, like could not get enough of it. And so I had some early signs that like, this was going to be a really good fit for me.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think in, in highlighting that something that I've kind of come to Realized over the last little while uh, is just like the power. I like that idea, of like the power of words bringing the positioning to life and helping it resonate. And I think you know, if, if any people are listening, you know, finding themselves into you know the same position you and I found ourselves in years ago, looking for our first product marketing role. Um, if you're looking for skills to develop, I think copywriting is such an undervalued um, yeah. skill for a product marketer. I think it's kind of taken for granted. Like, well, you're in product marketing, of course, you can write, yeah. but it, it's such a unique skill. And I think that's the thing that can take good positioning to incredible positioning. Yeah. And even if it's and then translating that positioning obviously in Denmark and messaging and you know, copy that lives on the marketing site or in product um to try and uh, you know encourage customers to take the next action as it, you know, problem that sound like the team that you yeah. were referring to earlier were trying to face. And it might not even necessarily be a skill that you as a product marketer pick up, because it is a discipline that you know can take years to hone. Um, but even just making the case for like, hey, maybe we should bring on a copywriter to partner not just with the product marketing, but the entire marketing org, maybe even the sales yeah. org, to make sure that we're landing with that positioning and messaging. Um, because yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it is really that superpower that can make, uh, you know, great positioning into really exceptional positioning.
0: Yeah, and you know what, even, I like that you brought up it being a helpful skill for product marketers. That's kind of, I don't know, I've bumped into that being kind of a contrarian take. Like I've seen, I feel like I see a lot of people writing on LinkedIn, like product marketers are not copywriters. And it's like, yes, not exclusively copywriters, but any good product marketer knows how to write good copy. And there's just no way around it. Like, I mean, how many times have you been in a meeting where product manager's talking about this feature you want to launch and they explain it and then you say, oh, so it's kind of like this and you, that, that ability and they're like, oh, that's exactly it. That ability to like take in the idea and translate it back out into words, like that's kind of our bread and butter. So yes, agreed. Hundred percent. I think it's it's a, such an underrated but like important skill for PMM.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think you know it's one thing to be able to take that idea and simplify it in a way that is easy to understand, and you know people internally, yeah, like that's exactly what you're trying to say. But I think copywriting is what takes that simple simplified message and actually like helps it sell. Um, it adds okay. that selling angle, and I think to your earlier comment around like a lot of product marketers say we're not copywriters, and you're right, we're not. Like that's absolutely right. Yeah. You, you know, product marketers. Are not typically or are always the strongest typewriters but i think if you really yeah. want to differentiate yourself as a product marketer and, and kind of put yourself in that top tier i think you should lean into it right like ask yeah. yourself like what are the courses i could be taking or what are the books i could be reading or what are the exercises i could be practicing to become a better copywriter because if people already assume you're going to do it anyway and it's yeah. unlikely those teams are going to have an in-house copywriter all on, like why not lean into it um yeah. And I know copywriting is not for everybody. Um, Like I said, it is a discipline that can take years to hone. But if you're looking for those opportunities to stand out, like nothing like a good copy, copywriting, um, you know, skill to to hone to do that.
0: Yeah. And the risk of praising LinkedIn too much, like I I do think that if, if you're talking like differentiate yourself, compete, get better at copywriting, just committing to writing on there regularly. Like I get it's time consuming and some people are like, I have a real job and I don't have time for LinkedIn. But if you're in that spot of trying to stand out and get better at writing and break into product marketing or land your next role, I can think of little else better than just consistently articulating what you think about product marketing or building in public and forcing yourself to actually write copy in LinkedIn. And then you kind of know, like, is it any good based on is it resonating and are people engaging with it? Like that's you get like very tight feedback loops
1: absolutely and, and but even on the book side even if nobody's reading it like just the the process of yes. practicing right like absolutely. i think i forget the crazy stat but like some minuscule percentage of the linkedin user base act, actually actively posts on a regular basis um yeah. so you know even if it's being posted and maybe five people in your network are reading it like that's still you getting out there um and yeah. you know it, it's not like you're necessarily going to build a huge following or you're going to make a million dollars off linkedin as a linkedin influencer um but just just practicing like you know, I,
0: cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I actually, a couple of months ago went out and bought an old timey typewriter because writing is something that I want to get back into just for my own personal enjoyment. Um, something I used to do a lot more in university. And, you know, I, I feel like just, I write stuff that I know no one is going to read and that I will never yeah. share with a, with a living soul, maybe outside of my wife. But like, I just know I do it because it's something creative and it helps, like you said, like practice the skill yeah. of, of writing and copywriting. And obviously Writing for the kind of writing that I'm doing is very different than copywriting, but still, just like within that realm of yeah. getting an idea onto paper, um, or in the context of LinkedIn and a post, um, is just a step along building that that skill uh, in some way. So, yeah, I can agree with you more on just getting out there and practicing. Yeah, agreed. Cool. So, uh, again, on this kind of idea of of your interest in in taking the plunge in product marketing, are there any areas of product marketing that you get really excited about, and on the flip side, any areas that maybe excite you a little bit less? than the ones that you really look forward to doing
0: you know i'm i'm going to give an answer that is probably a little bit overplayed but i just i love positioning and messaging you know that's that that ability to reframe your product in a customer's mind and then find find that group of people you win with just based on how you position it like that's the part that i end up like all the little like happy chemicals in my brain start firing. Like it's the stuff that I I really enjoy, but truly there's not a real part of the PMM function that I genuinely don't enjoy. I think the times where I felt discontent in the role is more so the times where either because I'm a founding PMM or there's just not a great understanding of product marketing, I'm doing things that fall outside the domain of product marketing. And I think that's the, the plight of anyone who's like a solo marketer or founding PMM or that sort of thing. Like you just have to do stuff that is not strictly product marketing. Like I don't, I don't love using LinkedIn ad builder. Hate it, but like got to, like I have to, cause I'm one of two marketers at Daytaro. So yeah, truly though, I think the, the actual discipline itself and the things that fall in it have just felt like a really good fit. And I like that in a stage like a company of my stage that you do get to touch the full PMM function, uh, I think I'll eventually be in a role where I niche down further. But re- for now, it's fun to get to kind of like ta- talk about pricing and then do a launch over here and then like stand up a battle card. Like that whole full funnel thing is is really fun.
1: Yeah, there's definitely no lack of variety uh, within product marketing, which I think is what draws a lot of people to it. I think if you're the kind of person who you know was Comfortable just doing the same thing on a regular basis, maybe not every single day, but like, hey, I'm yeah. going to super specialize on this one thing, then yeah. maybe product marketing isn't the place for you unless you are going to take on one of those more senior specialized roles. Like, you know, yeah. I think about even a job or we're in market for a specialized, um, you know, a senior product marketing manager, but specialized exclusively in pricing. So like, you got to be someone who loves to do pricing um, yeah. to, to fit into that role. But if you're just looking for a more generalist product marketing role, um, then you got, you got to be willing to embrace that variety. And you know yeah. it's, it's funny when you're talking about the things that you don't love doing like i, I couldn't agree with you more like i felt that in my bones because there have been countless times in my product marketing <laughs> career i've been asked to do things whether it's you know in my case it was it was uh facebook ads and not linkedin ads but same pain of, of having to navigate that tool and just doing you know a b yeah. tests and all that like again great experience didn't love doing it i'm I'm glad in hindsight that i do because i know what that is like and it's something yeah. that i wouldn't want to do for my uh, career full time but there's always going to be elements of the job that fall outside of the product marketing. I think as a good product marketing, those are or product marketer, excuse me, those are areas that you again are willing to lean into. And sure, yeah. at some point the conversation needs to take place to say like, hey, you know, this isn't technically product marketing's responsibility. And if this is something that we as a team yeah. or a company believe should be done, then maybe we should explore hiring a dedicated resource to do it. But in the interim, like product marketers are the ultimate yes, yes people. Uh, yeah. Hard to say, hard to say no as a product marketer. So uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't always make the job the most fun, but. Again, exposes you to lots, uh gives that variety and and does uh, you know, just kind of come with the territory at this point.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about it lately, how it sort of seems like in the absence of dedicated headcount, product marketing ends up taking on a lot of other jobs. Like like if you're in a developed org, you might have a customer marketer. But if you if you don't, who's doing that? Typically product marketing, or you might have someone who's dedicated for sales enablements, but if you don't. It's going to be product marketing. And I think being comfortable with that reality, because even, I mean, even the examples of people who specialize, like take like Andy McCotter Bicknell, who's like gone deep on competitive. I would, I would have a strong hunch that when he started, he wasn't getting to, actually, I know for a fact, he didn't get to just start off niche. So like, I think your, your point is accurate. Like if you want to be a product marketer know what, no matter what, you're going to have to embrace the breadth of the role before you can narrow down on something specifically
1: yeah and product marketing as a function has spawned so many other functions like competitive intelligence in name and title wasn't a thing i feel like really until product marketing became more prominent um maybe to a lesser degree you can make the same argument for sales or success enablement right like the enablement role i feel like has come to prominence in a lot of ways because product marketing has become a, a prominent function and people have realized like hey you know what this product marketer that we have is doing a million things and they're doing, you know, sales enablement and competitive in Intel. And it's pretty impressive. Wouldn't it be great if we had someone who could do that full time and then these roles get spun up? So I'm yeah. sure it's just the, the first of many uh, or those are some of the, the, the many roles that will continue to be spun out of product marketing. Um, and maybe again, maybe we get to a point where product marketing is sitting at that senior strategic level within the org. And then there yeah. are more specialized functions reporting into product marketing like competitive intelligence, like enablement. Um, you know, I'm sure there's several others uh, that we could name as well. But yeah, I think that's kind of where the role is headed in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. Like in your case, do you report up through
1: marketing? Yeah, yeah. product marketing yeah. at Jobber lives within the marketing organ. That's been the case consistently throughout my product marketing career. I know there yeah. have others, you know, I've chatted with a number of people who report into product. Um, yeah. you know, I've I've chatted with a rare few who um, you know, have product marketing as a standalone function um outside yeah. of marketing your product. And I think that's like in, in a lot of ways, the ultimate kind of goal for product marketing, uh, but that's, that's all that's I'm crossing audience. our fingers for. for like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Cool. Well, let's shift gears ever so slightly. Let's take off the product marketing hat or, or maybe put it back on. I guess it depends on how you answer this next question, but, you know, obviously in myself transitioning out of the role as host and you kind of stepping into it, you know, what was it about, you know, hosting the show that made you say yes to, to pursue the opportunity? Yeah. I think
0: i think it comes down to my my own experience you know like i think as i was trying to break into product marketing and wanting to kind of devour all the content i could and even after i broke it in but it was still just learning because there's not always super clear paths or you can't afford to do the course or whatever it is just that desire to learn as much as you can i feel like uh the opportunity to give that back to someone else and try to create content that either for someone who's trying to break in or like mature product marketers who are constantly getting better like even i wouldn't even call myself like a highly mature product marketer but i'm still constantly learning from content and getting to give back into the community in that way knowing it played such a key role for me like if you, especially if you don't have the money to take a cohort or to sign up for a class or do a membership that to provide really high value content and just help other PMMs feels like a huge, huge gift. And yeah, that's probably the guiding light. And then selfishly, I get to talk to a lot of really, you've done this and you hinted at this when we talked about it. I get to talk to a lot of really brilliant product marketers, and that just feels like a really sweet, rare opportunity. And I hope I can bring bring listeners along for for the ride.
1: I love that. And I'm sure the listeners will love to take, you know, part in that ride with you. Um, you know, as you, you know, take on the the future of the show. And, you know, I, I think you're right. It is we often take for granted, you know, working either remotely or in a hybrid world, like how much we miss just like talking about the job and not necessarily just like the day-to-day job that you run, but like the function of the role. Like that was, like yeah. you said, one of the things that I always really enjoyed was just like talking about product marketing with other product marketers who aren't talking about it within the context of how product marketing works at Jobber, or you know the 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 opportunities and challenges that we're facing inter- internally. Like just to just talk about the discipline. Um, I think uh, if anybody I'm sure and, you know was was getting the opportunity to more to do it more often, I think would jump on. Um, yeah. and, and then it's obviously representative or represented in the growth of the PMA and kind of these other more niche communities that have popped up around product marketing. People just yeah. want to you know talk about product marketing. They want to get better at product marketing. Um, yeah. So I, I think your your reasons for hosting are, are, are admirable, and I'm sure you'll be helping a ton of listeners along the way, you know, throughout their journey, whether it's you know taking that first step into a product marketing role or just becoming a stronger product marketer. So, uh, you know, yeah. I'll say thanks for for taking over, and I'm sure the listeners will be thanking yeah. you as well in the near future.
0: Yeah, I've got I've got big shoes to fill. Oh, they're not that big. They're they're big, but I think they picked me. We talked about this, but they picked. They picked the, another bald host to try to keep some continuity like the audience deserved that yeah even it won't though be
1: him, that <laughs> that jarring of a change
0: even though they can't see us it's just like you can know on the other side of this pod too handsome all
1: <laughs> oh well, yeah now we're being generous throwing words like handsome around you know I always find it funny uh, I'm not you know I've, I've attended a couple of PMM summits and I, I wonder if people realize like you know I'm not the tallest uh person on the planet. And by any stretch uh, of the of the definition, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm probably sure it sounded a lot taller. What's the phrase? You sound a lot taller on the radio. I think that's a quote from a movie somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, you're right. Seems like the the PMA uh, is trying to keep some level of consistency, uh, which is which is yeah, funny. There it is. Yeah, awesome. Well, well, let's uh, shift gears yet again and, and kind of dive into the the primary topic at hand with the time we have left together. Uh, And that's this idea of product launches, and more specifically, you know, making the call to delay a launch. And you know, you talked about posting on LinkedIn, and that was actually the topic of one of your most recent posts that got a lot of traction. And that's you know this idea of delaying product launches. But before we get into the nitty gritty of why you might want to consider doing that, can you share any past examples of when you've had to advocate for a delayed launch yourself?
0: Yeah. So that that post was born directly out of a launch that I was working on at Dataro and advocating for a delay. And so little context, we had, we had two features that were being built the same quarter that were both gonna be paid add-ons to our products. You can imagine our customers have their main subscription and these were things they could add on to that subscription. And they weren't core products um, or even like core features. And they weren't even relevant to all of our customers, but for a certain segment, mostly like our enterprise customers, these are gonna be really valuable. The problem is that the tech team um, had been working on one for months and it was going to be ready like within the week. And then there was another feature that was going to be ready about a month later. And the plan initially was, hey, we're just going to release these things as soon as they're done. Like that was that was the plan. to so, like release slash launch, having no differentiation or gap between that release and launch. And so I made a proposal like, hey, can we delay launching that that first product or that first feature and launch it alongside the second one. And I basically gave three reasons. Like one, just given price, um, they were going to appeal to a similar smaller segment of our existing customers. And we could kind of target that exact cohort of our customers. And then two, I wanted to decrease the feeling of nickel and diming our customers. Like if you could imagine we we one month come to them and say, hey, buy this extra feature. And then the next month we come back later and say, here's another thing to buy. Like, just not a great customer experience. And then I think like third, sort of by contrast, I think we I saw this potential that we could bundle these things t- together. And instead of that nickel and diming feeling, give a cohesive story and say, hey, we have these custom add-ons that can help you get the most out of Dataro. Would you like to explore them? And or like, or here they are here, are the two newest ones, like there's kind of a story there that could be done. But yeah, that was all the fodder personally under the surface to end up like writing and start articulating my thinking around that.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm curious, and you don't have to get into the, the details for obvious reasons. But, you know, I have found out whenever product marketing makes a recommendation to delay something that has a price point attached to it, and potentially yeah, revenue, yeah. there's always going to be some pushback of like, or well, basically deferring this revenue for a month and missing out on that month's worth of, of revenue, potentially. Like, did you, did you get any pushback along those lines or any, was anybody internally raising the flag to say like, Hey, you know, like, you know, Colin love the thinking. I think it makes a ton of sense, but you know that that month's difference could could actually help at the top line quite a bit. And, and yeah. then really do it anyway.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I I did get a little bit of that pushback. Not too bad. I think the team is very amicable to ideas, but, and it wasn't from where you'd expect. Like I think you would expect and typically PMMs are getting that pushback from sales, not to blame sales. We love them. They're very important. Uh, But this actually came from the CTO who is one of the founders and helped build the company. So like he has a real close, not your normal CTO, like has a clear line, like a line of sight on our bottom line. And I think for me, and this would be kind of like my advice to anyone who's trying to delay a launch and advocate for that. Like if you start with, I need more time, like it's just not going to give you the outcome you want to get. Like if you, it's going to, they're going to think, oh, you slacked off, you weren't ready. Like it's just, and even that's not true. It's just, it's kind of leads you on the wrong foot. And so I tried to sort of tie it back to like, what's the actual best experience for our customers? And if you can articulate, so in this case, it was primarily like reducing that feeling of nickel and diming the customer um, that in leaving them with that positive association of like, hey, these are just some custom add-ons you can choose from rather than asking you to buy this and asking you to buy that. That was probably the most persuasive. And then it had to be a little bit of analyzing the opportunity size. Like I said, okay, like say, how many people do you think are gonna buy this thing? And they they rattle off a number of customers. Say, so, okay, let's say only 75% of that number or even 100% of that number hit it. How much revenue are we actually talking in the next month? And most of the time it's pretty nominal. There are times where obviously it would be more, in this case, it was not like a huge one. So that was, sort of my way of trying to navigate that. Not that I've cracked it, but that was like, I think grounding in the customer experience because product product people and engineers, like they want to hear about how it impacts the customer. Like engineers in particular, like they don't often get to have those conversations. And so if you could give a glimpse as a PMM to like how our customers are going to feel about it and let the engineers take on that like customer-centric hat, I find you like they're amicable. They want to, actually do what's best for the customers not just like we built it we had to ship we have to ship it so that's that's been my experience though i haven't solved it and godspeed to anyone who's trying to have those conversations
1: yeah it's definitely not an easy conversation to navigate all the time and and i want to just highlight and thank you for highlighting the engineering aspect of it because i think even just speaking personally i for the longest time just like generalized product and engineering into this just like one team but they are two very different teams, right? Like, yeah. yes, they work incredibly closely together and they're on the same team and they interact every single day, but like they they are made up of different people and they do have different goals and different objectives and KPIs. And, you know, I, I really like that you've highlighted this idea of exposing the engineers specifically to that customer feedback and input, because, you know, even just as early as, um, last week, literally we had a bit of an offsite, a jobber for my specific kind of portfolio within FinTech, where we, You know, put our heads down for two days and really swarmed on this one kind of opportunity we're trying to pursue. And we had the senior engineer in the room, and it was great for them not only to be able to say, like, hey, this timeline is unrealistic based on the technical requirements, or oh, this is what we think we could actually accomplish, or this is how easy or challenging this is. So that was great. But even just like getting their input on the customer experience and also hearing and listening to calls as a group and having them get exposed to that, I think just helped inform how they would approach, you know, building the solution. So yeah, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I know that obviously obviously wasn't the, the focus of my question initially, but I just wanted to highlight that that little nugget yeah. because I think that's something that product marketers should be paying more attention to is how can we engage the engineering team beyond just the product manager? Because products yeah. are going to be engaged by definition, like that's part of their responsibility. But if you yeah. can find ways to engage in the engineering team, not only will they just be more supportive of decisions that you have to recommend or pursue in the future, but they can add another layer of, of opinion and experiences that can improve the experience for the customer. So yeah, yeah. I love that that uh, that little nugget.
0: Why do you think that is that product marketers tend to shy away from because it feels like we nail the customer communicate like the customer success arm and the product arm and the sales arm. But like in terms of communication, I feel like there typically is a gap there from product marketer to engineering.
1: i I don't think it's necessarily something that's being shy away to, away from excuse me, but I think it is just the assumption that like, well, product and engineering is the same thing. Like the PM, yeah. of course, would be sharing that down to the engineers. And like most good PMs do, um, yeah, absolutely. Sure. But I think it's different when you can actively engage engineering in that conversation, instead of them just like being fed the information after the conversation's already taken place. So that would be, that would be my my thinking. I think it's just like, you know, I, and again, as I said, like, I'm very guilty of that. Like I've always just been like, oh of course the PM gonna tell the engineers. But like, yeah, it's one thing to be told something is another thing to actually be engaged in that discussion.
0: Yeah, exactly. And even put it as, "Hey, this is what I'm observing. Are you open to this? Like, well, How does that strike you? If if we were to do this idea of delaying a launch or that whatever the ask is." Yeah, exactly.
1: So on again back to the topic of delaying a launch. So you know, in your post, you you listed some reasons as to why you might consider that beyond some of the ones that you just mentioned in your specific case. um, Be great if I think you can share those uh, and you know give us an understanding of of what those reasons are.
0: Yeah. So at there's no perfect way to slice this up, but I broke it into four reasons. Um, One being that you get the chance to batch features and and tell a more cohesive story. Um, The second being batching features by an adoption load. I'll explain more what I mean on that in a second. Uh, Third, gathering some customer feedback. And then four, buying time to do it right. Like those are four reasons that you could strongly justify delaying a launch. So that first one on building a more cohesive story you know I, I think this is most intuitive to pmms but there's often this external pressure that we just need to keep delivering you got to keep getting it out there like i feel like i've heard from a lot of um like found a lot of like early stage pmms or if they're working with the founder there's this pressure of like oh we have to be able to say look we're working on the product see like and you just ship something regardless of how you know how cohesive of a story it is but I mean, my argument was that it is much more powerful if you waited and you could maybe batch some of those features and and tell a cohesive story. Like in my mind, it's sort of the difference between giving someone a single flower and giving them a bouquet. Like the flower is a nice gesture, but a bouquet, like you're balancing all these colors and hues and it's just it's just a better experience. Like it's, it's just not worth it most of the time to ship it only to say, look, we, we're working on the product. That second one, um, I talked about the idea of batching features by adoption load. Uh, And the, the thing is this, like adopting a new feature takes work from your customers. Like I had this the other day, like I won't name the company, but they emailed me saying like, hey, we have this new AI feature. And I just deleted the email. I was like, I don't have the time to think about adopting this right now. And that's reality. Like, But sometimes you can make it easier by pairing together features that make a similar ask. So like, if you're gonna make a big visual change to the product, like this happened at Datara, we have two like main pages in app that are gonna go under a big change. And I propose like, hey, let's delay this one by a week and let's put these out together because we can then explain like, hey, these are two big changes we made visually. Like that's the adjustment, like capabilities didn't change, but what they see and how they navigate it, that's all gonna change. So thinking about how hard is it to actually adopt the product and then delaying features to match similar adoption loads. Third is customer feedback, I, you know, just because you haven't gotten feedback yet doesn't mean it's too late. Like, I mean, how many times has a PM been in a meeting and someone says to them like, oh, this feature's ready, we're gonna put it out. And they're like, Shh. like you were not ready for it or you didn't know it was actually on the roadmap, it just happens. And it's not too late to show that feature to a customer after it's built, but before it's launched, and get some feedback on messaging, on usability, on market perception, like on pricing. To our conversation earlier, uh, there's still a chance to get stuff that's valuable if you didn't get to do that earlier. And then last, and this one's the most general, but still important, just buying the time to do it right. Because I think this is the one that gets sacrificed most often. Because you know, product wants to ship that feature, a CEO wants to be able to say it's it's in the product. We we got it. We built this cool. Like we. It's like the AI wave where everyone wanted to like slap the AI bumper sticker on their on their car (laughs) or the PMM um, doesn't want to be the reason for a delay. And like, or worse yet, like the PMM just doesn't own the timeline. But I think you will almost never regret delaying a launch even by a week or two weeks to make sure like your team is aligned. You've actually built the assets. Um, The product is like clearly explained. There's a story Your customers are actually going to get it, like getting the, buying time to do it right. Because man, like what a waste. If you, your dev team spent four months building something and then you rush the launch. And so like it falls flat. That just feels like such a bummer. Those are, those are the four, there are more and I got pushed back on it. But those are the four like main, main reasons I, I could articulate for like why it would be worth delaying it.
1: Yeah, and I think all those reasons are solid, and I'm sure you've you know been able to leverage those reasons you know effectively, not only in the examples you you referenced earlier, but you know in, in past experiences in your career as well. Uh, you know, and I really like this idea of just like getting it right, not just for the reasons that you mentioned, but also within the context of you know I've experienced product teams in the spirit of getting things out and learning, um, yeah. rush the development of things, maybe cut functionality. And then ultimately going to market with a substandard product or a product that necessarily wasn't substandard in terms of functionality, but fell short of customer expectations. So, sure, it was great that you were able to ship it and get it out and move on to the next thing or move on to the next improvement. But, you know, are you really learning anything if your customer is telling you that, like, hey, you shipped a a half-baked solution and you already knew you were going to be shipping the other half of that bake? I was like, are you really learning anything? Like, why not just take the time um, to get it right? And obviously that's very hard for a product marketing manager to to like argue for, um, because there are, you know, a lot of moving parts in those decisions. Um, So yeah, that's the one thing I'd like to to highlight. And, you know, and I think that's a nice segue into the next question. And um, that's this idea of working with product and engineering after a roadmap has been put in place. To reevaluate timing, right? And I'm curious in your career, have you ever had that conversation with, with those teams to say, like, hey, the roadmap looks solid? You know, we're taking a lot of boxes in terms of things customers are asking for, or even things that we know that they're gonna love that they haven't asked for yet. But what if we move things around so that we could make that compelling story or that we could accomplish or address some of the reasons that you just referenced um, you know, moments ago? Have you ever had to navigate that conversation yourself? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, I, I think even that's, that's come up recently with even some of these same, same products that we're just talking about and same features we're just talking about. I, I've worked primarily in environments that the roadmap roadmap have a certain level of being dynamic to it. So I've not been in like a beast of a company where the roadmap is clear for a year. I'm not, I'm not even convinced they exist, but I think they do. Like my buddy works at HubSpot and it sounds like they have their crap together, um, but I've, I've worked in orgs where they're very much trying to respond to uh, revenue trends and where are they getting wins and where are customers, where are customers actually, um, what are they buying? And what are they interested in? And so I've found that I have to be able to tie it back to revenue somehow. Like I have to be able to, if I'm going to, if I'm going to make a change, like, hey, you should m- bump these features forward and push these ones out like that's that was essentially the ask in one of my one of my recent proposals was like will you swap build this feature now and then punt that one later and here's the reason why i think more customers will buy if we do it this way but that ability to tie tie the change to revenue in at least in an org my size is Crucial. I would love to learn from someone who's been it, done it in a bigger org. I've just, I've not been in that seat where you're working with massive teams and like a really crystal clear roadmap. But I think at our stage, like I'm, our company's like startup pre-series A, like we're early and most of my companies have been series A, maybe a little bit more mature than that. Uh, That ability to tie it to revenue is the thing that's going to get you heard.
1: Yeah. And I would imagine the conversation would be different depending on the level of influence product marketing has within the org as well, right? Like know we talked about earlier product marketing is a standalone function that has this kind of strategic input and i think it's a lot not necessarily easier but people will listen when product marketing speaks and says hey we actually think that we'd get more value or to your point increase revenue more effectively if we were to shift things around um so i I think you're spot on and I, i like your anecdote about roadmaps always being fluid and i think you're absolutely right like it's that famous mike tyson quote like everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face." And either you're punching yourself in the face, or your customers are punching the face, or a competitor's is punching the face. But like something's always going to come up that makes you change your plan. And roadmaps tend to be the first things uh, that get that get affected when those when those things happen. So yeah, that's the that's the quote that always comes up whenever the topic of roadmap comes up in my mind. I'm like, oh, we're moving this around. Like, okay, who got punched in the face? What yes. what are we reacting to here?
0: Someone got punched. Yeah, the reactivity. Gosh, that's a that's a big part of it. And I think a lot of times you. You're trying to avoid the sense of reactivity, but the reality is you just, you have to be responsive. You know, it's it's funny too, the idea of influence you mentioned. I've been in roles where they hired product marketing, not really sure what they were getting. And then I just came in and started to shape expectations. And I found I was able to get more of a seated at the table than they probably planned on giving me. And I think, I don't know, I'd be curious if this is true for other product marketers. I haven't, I haven't asked this question to anyone but I do imagine that in a smaller company where you're shaping the role of product marketing that just by show like showing your work and showing what you're thinking through that's been my experience like I made this proposal for our ideal customer profile at my last company and it was a shift to move up market and pivot our strategy and I don't think the CEO brought me on thinking like oh this product marketer is going to do that I think they were like oh they're going to explain the product better Uh, but I do think there's a tremendous opportunity for PMMs to lean into strategy and to gain that influence by just showing how they think and kind of thinking in public.
1: And I think you're right. If you're coming in as a founding PMM, I think there's a little bit more leverage to to do that at the outset. And I think by showing your work early on, it almost reduces the burden of having to show your work for future recommendations, right? Like if I'm about to establish like, Hey, like I know if Colin's going to be coming to me with this recommendation, that's unexpected or out of the blue or slightly different than what we were intending to do, that he's likely thought about this, you know, very well and very critically, and he's done yeah. all the homework. And if I want to see it, I'm sure he has it ready, but like, Hey, Colin knows yeah. what he's talking about and we'll just not necessarily take him at face value, but you know, the, the burden of proof is not going to be as nearly as high in future conversations. If you are going to be proactive as a founding PM, to, to push those boundaries and to, to make yeah. those recommendations and question those past decisions. So yeah, I, I think for any, you know, person who's either pursuing their first founding PMM role or finds themselves in the, in the founding PMM role, that advice is is going to help you in the long term when it comes to, you know, making those recommendations down the road. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll Colin, this has been great. And, you know, I, I'm excited, uh, you know, for you to take over the hosting roles uh, for, for a lot of reasons, um, you know, but I think just in having this conversation with you, it's quite clear that you are someone who's quite knowledgeable, despite being still early in your PMM journey, as as I am as well. Um, I think everybody's always, you know, at various stages. Um, but you're, you're obviously very passionate and, and informed about the world of product marketing. And I think, you know, you're going to have some fantastic conversations with future guests. And uh, I know the listeners are probably as equally as excited as I am to hear those conversations. Uh, but before you, I, I let you go and, and officially kind of pass the mantle, as it were, um, you know, you and I talked about doing things a little bit differently. Typically, I have the same last question that I ask all my guests, Wait. But I think this time around, you actually wanted to turn it around on me before I before I sign off for for the final time. So I'll uh, yeah pass over you to ask that question and then we'll wrap things up.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I just was thinking, you know, you've done what is it? This is episode 100 and you've done 70 something episodes. I think. Is that right? Was it 75? I can't remember where you landed. But
1: yeah, and in around 70, give or take a couple on (laughs) either
0: side. People don't know. That's like multiple years of commitment to this podcast. and so. At the risk of asking too big of a question. What what is your biggest takeaway from your time like serving this audience and doing these interviews? Like you could have two if you want them, but I would be curious, like what, what's the thing that you would offer as you're reflecting on that?
1: Yeah, that is a, a deep question. And I'll do my best to, to kind of give you a satisfactory answer. So and I'm sure this is something that you'll observe in your time as host as well. And that's, you know, there are so many fantastic product marketers out there. Um, all of whom have such unique experiences and backgrounds. And I think the best way to become a stronger product marketer is to reach out to those individuals and to have conversations like the ones you and I just had or that I've had with Paskets and that you're going to have with future guests. Because if, you know, in product marketing, we always talk about talking to customers and learning and, and always trying to, you know, find answers to questions or solve problems. Yeah, so we we often neglect ourselves and our own personal and professional development. And I think, you know, this term that I've heard thrown around, uh, you know, this idea of trauma bonding, and, and maybe we don't necessarily bond through <laughs> trauma on the product marketing side, at least I would like to think that's not the case. At we might. I, I, yeah, <laughs> in some cases, sure. But I, I hope that's genuinely not real trauma that anyone's having to experience product marketing. But even still, like, just this idea of knowing there are other yeah. product marketers out there who are facing the same problems that I am that are having to have the same difficult conversations internally that I've had. In, in learning from each other and how to navigate those and, and how to become better product marketers um and, and just like better people as well like there are so many people i've chatted with that have just taught me more about just like being a good person um on this planet that yeah. uh i think we'd all benefit from having those kinds of conversations with people outside of our own immediate circle so maybe uh, perhaps a philosophical answer to your to your very straightforward That's question great. but that would be my biggest takeaway and, and again like I hope, and I'm sure it's a lesson that you will learn as well as you, you know, start your own hosting journey as host of the show.
0: Yeah. Well, on behalf of the product marketing, just community at large, thank you. Thank you for giving a lot of time. Like this isn't just for people to like, you're not paid, like you're just, you're giving this time. And so thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And it's genuinely been an honor. And again, I won't drag this on too long, but I will say, you know, um, I've only gotten to where I am as host because of the fantastic guests that I've had on the show, you know, yourself included. So, really, the thanks goes to those individuals who took the time out of their own busy schedules to come on. And, and I say that just because if you are someone listening who's thinking to themselves, like, oh, you know, Mark and Colin really seem to have their, their shit together and they know what they're talking about, I could never be on a show uh, as a guest like that. And I can tell you, you're patently wrong. Um, yeah. There are so many insights and experience that are still out there to share as product marketers or, again, just as people. Um, so, if you've ever been on the fence thinking about being a guest, or maybe this is the first time you've really given it some thought, like, Reach out to the PMA. Reach out to Colin. The show is always looking for for great guests to come on and share their experiences. And who yeah. knows, your insights might help future product marketers. Um, they might help the future Collins or or you know, people who found themselves in Colin's shoes not that long ago, looking for to get into product marketing. So that would be my one kind of last uh, thought to leave listeners with is, don't yeah. be afraid to get out there. Uh, reach out to Colin. Reach out to the PMA. Beyond this show, other shows. There are t- tons of ways to get your your experiences out there and help others.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Well, Colin, again, this, is, this has been great. Really looking forward to catching future episodes with you as hosts. And I know the listeners are as well. So thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck as you take on the role of host. Likewise. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. Take care. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, Here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.